Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College, offering a fully online graduate-level certificate in learning differences and neurodiversity programs. Visit landmark.edu slash certificate to learn more. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Welcome to the MindShift Podcast, where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I'm Ki Sung. Today, we're going to talk about one group of students that really doesn't get enough attention, middle schoolers. Joining us is Phyllis Fagel, a school counselor, psychotherapist, and author of the new book, Middle School Superpowers, Raising Resilient Tweens in Turbulent Times. She's here to talk about why middle school is the last best chance to impress social skills and values upon kids. Plus, she'll share some developmentally appropriate tools parents and educators can use to better understand their tweens, cultivate a sense of belonging, and help them when they get into trouble. Stay with us. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of The Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Phyllis Fagel, welcome back to the MindShift Podcast. Thank you. It's so good to be here. In some ways, we're picking up a conversation we had last year when you said in our seasonal podcast that middle school is the last best chance. What's going on in the lives of middle schoolers that makes this period a unique opportunity in a child's life? When I call middle school the last best chance, I often get a reaction of stress from parents. And I want to clarify that by last best chance, it's not the last chance, but it is the last best chance because this is an age when kids are still so interested in what all the adults around them are thinking. They very much want to please their teachers, their coaches, their parents. They're sophisticated and they're smart and they're interested and interesting, but they're still impressionable. They still have a lot of that little kid in them. And that makes them ripe for really teaching how to be a good person, how to navigate school, and how to have balance in your life as well. 
Let's talk about the title of your book, Middle School Superpowers, which is your second book after Middle School Matters. So tell us, what are the superpowers unique to middle schoolers? Middle schoolers are incredibly funny. They want to feel like they can make a difference. And the wonderful thing about them is that they truly believe they can make a difference, even if it's just with a well-worded petition. They are kind. I know that there's this negative cultural rhetoric about the phase that they're mean and drama-seeking, but they really are trying very hard to be a good person, to be a good friend, even to their own detriment at times. I think one of the advice, one of the tips you have in your book is to assume positive intent. Does that speak to what you what you think middle schoolers are trying to accomplish, where they're coming from? I think it's really hard when you're 12 or 13 and someone does something that hurts your feelings to assume that they did not set out to hurt your feelings or they did not set out to wound you. And one of the ways we can help kids in this age group have a much gentler middle school experience is to teach them how to think more flexibly, to help them challenge that instant instinct they have to go to the worst case scenario. Yes, maybe they looked at you funny because they're upset with you or maybe they just got a test back and they weren't happy with how they did, or maybe they were upset about an argument they had in the car on the way to school. It's not about trying to talk them out of whatever it is they're thinking. It's just about helping them think more flexibly and more expansively so that when they have that next slight or perceived slight, they don't go straight to that worst case scenario. I think that relates to resilience, right? And you write in your book that the word resilience is overused and misunderstood and maybe seen as a fad. Um, Can you describe resilience for our listeners and tell us what parents and caregivers can do to help middle schoolers build resilience for what they face in the world? I almost didn't use the word resilience in the subtitle of this book because it does seem to be so overused and misunderstood because people tend to think of resilience as this magical set of abilities that you're born with, kind of like having an ear for music. But instead, what resilience is, is having a set of skills that can be taught and that can be learned that help you bounce back when things don't go your way, that essentially help you put one foot in front of the other. The other thing that I think people tend to misunderstand about resilience is that a child's ability to bounce back doesn't necessarily correlate to the severity of a challenge. The way they respond has a lot to do with their personal history, whether or not they have strong connections with others and role models, and whether or not they believe they can make a difference. And would you like to elaborate a little bit more on those skills that parents can teach them? Yes. The 12 superpowers that I talk about in the book, and I use the word superpowers in part because I want to challenge the negative way we often think about middle schoolers. I do think they are superheroes in the making, but there are many skills that they can benefit from in particular. So these are skills like super daring, which has to do with taking risks and going out on a limb at an age when you're excruciatingly self-conscious and insecure, and super sight, which is about having the ability to anticipate how your behavior today might land or how it might impact what outcome you have. And that's important because middle schoolers are still in the process of learning how to make decisions in the first instance. Their brains aren't fully developed. They're in the throes of puberty. And it can be really hard not to be swayed by all the interference, particularly social interference, wanting to impress someone, wanting to make someone laugh, feeling envious, 
about something you don't have or feeling insecure about your perceived lack of skills in comparison to someone else. Um, And is it fair to say that Hollywood gets this, that there are superpowers among middle schoolers? Because I do see a lot of TV examples of middle schoolers, you know, having this experience and exerting some agency in the world and sometimes saving that world. I love that. And I think we see that a lot in the media. We also see a lot of false portrayals of middle schoolers in the media. In particular, there is this sense, particularly for middle schoolers themselves, that everyone is drinking or vaping or involved in sexual activity. And the truth is that most middle schoolers are not engaging in those activities. There's still so much of that little kid in them, but because they're at an age when they want to conform and fit in, they're really susceptible to whatever messages they're picking up in the media. So the more we can have positive portrayals of middle schoolers making a difference, I think the better off we'll be as a society and the easier it will be for middle schoolers to navigate all the challenges they're facing. And I want to talk about teachers and what teachers can do to help middle schoolers build that resilience. Middle schoolers are sponges. They're learning so much from everybody around them, not just their peers, but from their teachers, their coaches, their parents. And teachers are in this wonderful position of being able to influence how they resolve conflict in the school setting. They're spending so much time with them. They're responsible for helping to set the climate in the classroom, and they can really help kids feel a sense of ownership of everything from rule generation to what is okay and not okay when it comes to how people treat one another. I love it when teachers do activities that build middle schoolers' confidence. Some of that might be behind the scenes, whether they're being really thoughtful about how they pair kids on group projects. Some of it might be the examples they're showing kids of other middle schoolers making a difference in the world to give them that sense of empowerment. Some of it can be more explicit, an activity like having a compliment circle where Everyone is walking around and putting a compliment on a sheet of paper that has each kid's name on it at the top. Of course, they're middle schoolers, so I always preface an activity like that with a few disclaimers. First, you have to explain what a compliment is. It's a really powerful social skill, but not one that kids intuitively understand. So I will explain that a compliment is something that is authentic. If it feels hollow, it won't be meaningful to the person receiving it. We talk about how it feels better to get a compliment about something that is substantive rather than someone telling you they like your water flask. And I, again, reiterate that if you have nothing to say about anybody, don't put anything down on the paper. But when I do this activity, and I've done it many, many times, at the end, I'll collect it. I'll just make sure nothing has been written that shouldn't be there. I will add my own compliment because they love to hear how adults see them as well. And then we debrief. We have a conversation about how they feel about the compliments they were given. You can hear the joy in their voice when they, with surprise, will say something like, I didn't realize everyone thought I had such a good sense of humor or such a great sense of style. At an age when kids are so vulnerable, so unsure of themselves, and asking that developmental question, am I good enough, on a daily, even hourly basis, this is the kind of activity that can help build their confidence and also impact how they treat one another. Phyllis, there's a section of your book, uh, and you describe the imaginary audience. 
Um, reading about that gave me some feelings because, you know, as an adult right now, I don't think about who's watching, but I know for middle schoolers, that is definitely not the case. So for those for whom it's been decades since we've been there, can you tell us about the imaginary audience and how that influences how adolescents might be experiencing life right now? The imaginary audience is this idea that a psychologist named David Elkin came up with, and it's the idea that tweens feel like they're constantly being scrutinized, that if they have one hair out of place or they have a pimple, that everyone is staring at it and thinking about it when they're looking at them. Of course, we as adults know that all the other middle schoolers are preoccupied with their own perceived flaws, but that is just part and parcel of being in this age group. And what it does is make it really hard for kids to take risks, especially risks that carry the potential for social embarrassment. And by social embarrassment, it could be anything from asking to sit at a table and being turned away to offering an answer in class and risking getting it wrong. And it's so hard for them to do that. And they need so much support As adults, we need to recognize that because they're studying us. They want to see if there's any consistency between our body language and what we're saying to them. And sometimes it can go both ways as well. They can feel super offended, for instance, that someone didn't invite them to a party or to a hangout, even though they didn't invite that person to their own, but they're so self-centered at this age, which is developmentally appropriate, that it can be harder for them to put themselves in other people's shoes. So we have to be helping make sure that we're calibrating risks in a way that feels safe to them. And is that related to distorted thinking among adolescents about like what they see versus, or what they do versus how it's perceived? When you are in middle school, you are experiencing all of your emotions at the extremes. And that is largely a result of the thoughts that you're having. And so if you are thinking everyone is staring at you and then you make a mistake, it feels like the stakes are much higher. And so as adults, we can help kids start to challenge some of that inner self-critic, that inner defeatist voice that they so quickly tend to land on. When I do worry buster groups with kids, one of the exercises I'll do with them is once there's some trust built, is to have them say out loud what they're telling themselves. And there's this moment of recognition when the other kids in the room suddenly realize with almost astonishment that Other people are as hard on themselves as they are. And they also realize that they're talking to themselves and saying things that they would never, ever in a million years say to a friend. And so challenging that inner self-critic is really about treating yourself the way you would treat a friend. And what I love about those group settings that I do in the school is that when someone expresses whatever that negative feeling is that they have about themselves, everybody else twists themselves into a pretzel to make that person feel better. And it kicks off this cycle of positivity. And we want to make sure we're bringing some of that to the surface so we can give kids an opportunity to share what it is that they feel insecure about and teach them how to challenge that voice. Sounds like a very helpful tool. And I hope, you know, one that can help kids be kinder and more realistic with themselves. Yes, and what is really amazing is that when you teach kids to be more self-accepting 
and to embrace whatever it is that is making them feel insecure about themselves. They're not only kinder to themselves, they're less likely to tolerate mistreatment from others, and they tend to be kinder and gentler with everyone else in their social orbit. I know you just talked about being kinder, um, but I also want to talk about conflict. Um, We do have conflict at all ages, but there's a certain kind of middle school conflict that can be especially hurtful, whether it's exclusion or bullying. For me, it was name calling. And while it can be easy to default to litigating the details among kids, you describe a tool that gets a little deeper at what's underneath that conflict. And that's by asking the question, do you think you were your best self? Uh, So Phyllis, in what situation would you ask that question? And how would an adult guide a middle schooler through that question? I share a story in middle school superpowers of a student who came to my office and I had called her in because another student had just collapsed on the floor of my office a few hours earlier in tears, devastated by something that this other child had done that was unquestionably mean, if it was true. And there had been witnesses, and it did seem that this had transpired the way that this kid had told me about it. And she was just devastated. And I was really surprised because the person who had done this was someone who had been new to the school, who had been bullied in their last school, and who was known for being kind. And my first instinct when they came to my office, which wasn't a particularly helpful one, was to start with something along the lines of, I I don't know what you were thinking, or how could you do this? And as soon as I started talking, I could see her body language stiffen. I could see I wasn't going to get anywhere. And so I changed tactics And I essentially dropped the rope and put it back on her because what we want is for kids to wrestle with their own behavior rather than focus on litigating it with us, the adults. And so instead I said to her, I was really surprised when I heard this story. It didn't seem like you at all. And I'm wondering, do you think you were your best self? And she immediately started to cry and immediately was willing to engage I just wanted to ask you a little bit about shame because I imagine as adults, either voluntarily or not, will make kids feel shame in some way. What advice do you have about shame and what are just some best practices if adults go there or like how to deal with it after the fact? When we see a kid make a mistake, whether it's a student or our own child, we want to start with curiosity and we want to give them a chance to tell their side of the story or their impression of what transpired. Because often we bring our adult biases to the table and we get it wrong. I share another story in the book about a mother who called me and was horrified because one of her daughter's friends had overheard two girls trash talking her in the neighborhood and secretly videotaped them and then sent her daughter that tape of these girls calling her a loser and a fake and saying not nice things. And this mother was so upset because she thought this girl who sent the tape was her daughter's friend, but couldn't imagine that anyone would send something so mean to someone they considered a friend. And she was struggling with how to interpret the incident, with how to handle it. And so she called me and I told the mom, I know it may seem counterintuitive, 
But I have a hunch that your daughter's friend actually thought she was doing the kind, nice thing. And the mother was dubious. But the next day I went into a sixth grade classroom and I laid out the situation. I asked the kids in the room, how many of you would have taped the girls saying those mean things and sent it to your friend? And just about all of them raised their hands. And going back to that idea of the imaginary audience and shame, I kept that poker face on. And rather than being reactive or immediately jumping in with my own opinion about what had happened, I said, help me understand why that felt like the right thing to do. And one person raised their hand and said, because she should know who she could trust. You should always tell your friends if you're loyal that there's someone saying something unkind about them so that they can distance themselves from that person. And all the other heads in the room kind of nodded in agreement. At that point, I started to ask them a series of questions like, Have you ever said something mean about someone? How would you feel if someone taped you and sent it to the person? Have you ever said something in passing that maybe you felt it right then, but didn't really believe it at your core? Or maybe you said it just to be agreeable, but didn't mean it. What can this girl do now that she has that information? Is there anything she can do to unhear it or make it better? And I asked a lot of other questions just to get them to really think about that situation with a bit more empathy for everybody involved and just to be more of a critical thinker. And at the end, I asked that same question again, would you tape the conversation and would you send it? And just about everybody that time said no. If I had simply laid into them and said, that's a terrible thing to do, that's just mean, it's just spreading the meanness, they wouldn't have learned. I needed them to approach it as the expert in their own life and to really think it through so that they could make a different decision the next time. Uh, Thank you for sharing that example. So I want to talk about COVID uh, because you wrote this book during the pandemic. Um, We're nearing almost four years out since schools first shut down. Um, As a therapist, what are you seeing in kids who are middle schoolers today? First of all, I can't believe it's been almost four years. Time has kind of collapsed in a weird way for all of us. And I think for students as well, they're still trying to make up for lost time. Their social needs, which are so intense, were not met. And at the same time, they're insecure and their social skills are weaker. So as much as they want to make up for that lost time, they're having trouble connecting in the way they might hope to connect with others. So we're teaching them a lot of things that they might have otherwise learned just through osmosis and through interacting in person with peers back when they were in fourth grade or third grade, wherever they might have been at the time that they were home. And their stamina, I think, is still down. Their ability to go to school all day, do homework, do the same number of activities that middle schoolers might have done pre-pandemic, they're just not able to overextend themselves. And maybe they never should have been overextending themselves in the way that they were prior to the pandemic, but now they're not willing to. A lot of them really relished the opportunity to slow down, to sleep in a little bit, to have more time to reflect on what works for them and doesn't work for them. We don't want to lose all of that either. And as someone who works in schools, you spend a lot of time in classrooms. You visit a lot of schools around the country. 
And you mentioned two exercises, the worry buster exercise and the compliment circle, which everyone can read about in Phyllis's book. I'm wondering if you could list for our teachers um, some other favorite activities for classrooms to help tweens build that resilience. I'm always looking for activities and things that teachers can do that don't require any specialized training, but that help kids improve their social skills. Some of my favorites are really simple, have kids come up with different conversation prompts. It can be very simple things like, what's your favorite food? Something that anyone could answer, even kids who are still learning the language, and have kids take turns leading a conversation at the beginning of class for maybe two or three minutes about maybe the pros and cons of that question, just to get everybody practicing engaging with one another, asking and answering questions, and making sure that you're spreading the love and having everybody have an opportunity to practice those skills. Another is to have kids in the classroom setting generate a short list of issues that have come up in the classroom. It could be something as simple as everyone asking each other what grade they got on a test. Then have them break up into small groups of three or four and brainstorm possible solutions or thoughts about that issue. Have them put each thought or possible solution on a different sticky note without any identifying information. Afterwards, have them stick those post-it notes up all over the walls of the classroom, have kids walk around, pull off their favorite idea or their favorite solution, and then have everybody share the one that they pulled. And the reason I like that activity is because it's a way to have everybody reinforce what social norms are important to them without carrying the social risk of stating it as an individual. And often what you find is there's much more agreement than people think. And what feels really risky, such as saying you don't want anyone laughing when people make a funny comment or an unintentionally funny comment in class, that there's usually universal agreement and that can help change the tone in that classroom. Phyllis Fagel, thank you so much for all your tips and advice and stories uh, working with middle schoolers. I just want to thank you for all of that. Thank you for having me on today. Phyllis Fagel is a school counselor and psychotherapist and author of Middle School Superpowers, Raising Resilient Tweens in Turbulent Times. She also wrote Middle School Matters. We'll have more mini-sodes coming down the pipeline to bring you ideas and innovations from experts in education and beyond. Hit follow on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a thing. The MindShift team includes me, Ki Sung, Nima Gobier, Karen Newhouse, and Marlena Jackson-Rotondo. Our editor is Chris Hambrick. Seth Samuel is our sound designer. Additional support from Jen Chian, Katie Sprenger, Cesar Saldana, and Holly Kernan. MindShift is supported in part by the generosity of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and members of KQED. Talking about money can be so hard, especially when the person you're talking to is still learning how to do long division. That's why Million Bazillion, a Webby-winning podcast from Marketplace, is here to help. I'm Bridget, and with my fellow co-host Ryan, we help teach your little ones about complex topics like bankruptcy, climate change, and why there's so much gold at Fort Knox, and so much more. Listen to Million Bazillion wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and 
I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.